Well, last week we started a sermon series titled The Upside Down Kingdom. And we discussed that when Jesus came onto the scene, his message was clear. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. In other words, the time has arrived. God's power is being unleashed into the world to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Right? This is the good news that Jesus preached. And we talked about last week, we talked about how there is continuity and discontinuity between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God, like the kingdom of the world, has a king, has subjects, has a people, has a territory, and has a law. But really, that's where the similarities in because the kingdom of God, its king, its law, its territory, its subjects are so much different than the kingdom of the world. And that's where we get this upside down kingdom idea. And so um, Jesus, what he does on the Sermon on the Mount, he really starts to outline and detail what his kingdom is all about. And how it's so upside down when compared with the world. And he doesn't waste any time getting to the upside downness of his kingdom. Remember last week, he, he starts out, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? And what he was saying was, blessed are those... Who know there are bro- who know and acknowledge they are broken, which is totally upside down when compared to the kingdom of the world, right? Because in the kingdom of the world, it's blessed are those who are popular and beautiful and successful and wealthy and ultra talented. Those are the ones who get in. Those are the ones who get accepted in the world. But Jesus says, "Not my kingdom. Nope." There's only one thing required for you to be accepted in it, and it is poverty of spirit. It's knowing that you are broken, right, and acknowledging it. That there's nothing that you can do, and there's nothing within you, and there's nothing that you have that can make you acceptable to God. And then Jesus, he continued on. We looked at last week. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, blessed are those who not only acknowledge their sin, but they are sorrowful over it. That they're sorry for the ways that they have hurt God's heart and the way they have hurt others. They're sorry for the, 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 the chaos and the pain that their sin has caused. You know, in the world's kingdom... People don't want to be held accountable, do they? It's always somebody else's fault. Jesus saying, no, not so in my kingdom. Jesus goes on, and and, and we, we covered this last week too. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In other words, the entire earth is the territory of God's kingdom. And it is those who are gentle and who are dependent upon God that will inherit it. 
You know, the kingdom of the world says, blessed are the proud, blessed are the strong, blessed are the intimidating, blessed are the self-sufficient, blessed are the capable, blessed are the overbearing and the aggressive. Jesus says, no, not so in my kingdom. Blessed are the meek. They will rule over the earth. And then we looked at one more of Jesus' Beatitudes last Sunday. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Meaning, blessed are those who give up on doing life their own way. Blessed are those who give up on being the captain of their ship. Blessed are those who seek my will, who seek to live by my precepts and commands. They will be they will find that they are that they will find the joy that they've been seeking all along. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. How different is God's kingdom? Already. I mean, we've covered four beatitudes and it's already you see the upside downness of it. We're going to continue on by looking at Jesus' Sermon of the Mount. And we're going to just look at one beatitude this morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Let's pray. And we will pick up in verse 7 of Matthew 5. And I want you to notice that with this beatitude, Jesus shifts gears. He shifts gears from talking about the relationship that we need to have with God and the attitude that we need to have towards God. And he talks about the attitude and the relationship that we need to have with our fellow human beings. I'm so glad Deborah came and shared on this Sunday because what they do, oh man, it's what this beatitude is all about, and we will see that. Let's pray. Lord, we are so utterly dependent upon you and your grace to be accepted in your kingdom. We're so utterly dependent upon you and your grace to become more like you. Lord, I pray that you would use this message in such a way that we walk out of here with the thought, with an increasing thought of how awesome you are, how much you love us, and how we need to partner with you to see your mercy extended to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy, what is mercy? What is it? What is mercy? Who are the merciful? Mercy is compassion for those who are in need. Are in need. I, heard, I read one author put it, mercy is compassionate action. Mercy is compassionate action, or you could say it's compassion in action. It's not merely a feeling of compassion. It's a feeling that leads one to then take action so that the person that is hurting is taken care of. So that the person is needy is filled. 
Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 it illustrates this so perfectly, right? Many of you are familiar with the story. There's a man who's attacked by robbers, and they leave him naked, they leave him beaten, they leave him half dead on the side of the road, right? And two separate religious leaders see the man, and they just keep going on their merry way and leave the guy to die in the ditch, right? But there's this Samaritan man who, by the way, Samaritans didn't associate with Jewish people, right? And there's this Samaritan man who is, he sees the man injured, and he is moved with compassion, but... He doesn't just stop with feeling compassion. He goes and he bandages this man's wounds and he takes him to a hotel where he can be cared for and where he can recover. And the Samaritan says, hey, to the innkeeper, I will pay the the, the fees for as long as this man needs to get better. And Jesus, he asked the man he was telling the story to of, of this good Samaritan, He says, Jesus asked this in in Luke 10, verses 36 and 37. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The religious leaders, they may have felt some compassion, doesn't appear as if they did by the story, but who knows, maybe they felt compassion, but that's not enough. Mercy is compassion in action. And that's exactly what Jesus said the people of his kingdom will exemplify. Deborah, pregnancy choices. Compassion in action. They see the need, and they're doing something about it. Praise God for his kingdom people. They can't look at the hurting world and, take, and, and, and just be, turn a blind eye to it. They can't see people in the ditch hurting and broken and not do something about it. Mercy is directly opposed to the kingdom of the world, isn't it? The kingdom of the world says, look... <laughs> Just ignore, don't look at the person in the ditch. It might, it might make you sad. You don't want to be all sad, right? And by the way, the person's probably in the ditch because they deserve it. So they've made their bed. Let them lie in it. They deserve it, right? Jesus says, this won't be true about the people in my kingdom. Nope. I'm so thankful, Deborah. You don't look at the women that come in there and say, you deserve that. You made your bed, lay in it. God's kingdom people, they will use their money, they will use their time, they will use their talents to alleviate the hurting people of the world. Look, Israel's lack of mercy in the Old Testament infuriated God. It's repeated. And actually, the whole book of Amos 
is about God's people turning a blind eye to people in distress. It infuriated God. The prophets talk all about it. They weren't taking care of the poor. They weren't taking care of the widow. They weren't taking care of the orphaned or the foreigner. Jesus himself said, hey, when he returns and he completes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, he's going to tell the people of his kingdom this. Check this out, Matthew 25, verses 30 through, 34 through 40. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. And you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, As surely I say to you, as inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. First John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion is this. Like if you're going to get one thing, Get this, visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. The Bible is clear, God's kingdom will, God's kingdom people will be merciful. They will exemplify compassion in action. They will see the needs of the afflicted and they will do something about it. Now, That's one aspect of mercy. There's another aspect of mercy, and this one is equally important. Mercy also involves forgiving someone who has done wrong. Now, the kingdom of the world is completely unmerciful in this regard, aren't they? You mess up, and then the people in the world say, you got to pay, right? If somebody wrongs you, avenge yourself. You get even. You blast them on social media. You hold on to a grudge against them. Just as I was working on this section of my sermon, I'm sitting at Starbucks, and this man comes in. And he comes storming in, huffing and puffing, goes immediately to the stand that has the cream and announces for everybody to hear, you forgot my cream again. Storming back out. That's the perspective of the world. You don't do right, you mess up. If you don't serve me the way I think I should be served, I'm going to make you pay. He wanted to make those Starbucks workers pay. 
right? If somebody insults you, you refuse to do business with them ever again. If your food takes a long time at a restaurant, what do you do? You act all mean to the server. If someone cuts them off, cuts you off on the road, you tell them that they're number one. <laughs> right? This is how we are. And what's crazy is we can have people come in here every Sunday. You laugh, but we act this way. How this, this kind of stuff ticks me off. It does. Is this being salt and light to the world? Come on. So, this is a robust view of mercy. Mercy is compassion in action, but it's also forgiveness for the person that has done wrong. Now, Jesus teaches that his kingdom people will be full of this kind of mercy. Why? Why will they be full of this mercy? Why will his people be so different compared to the rest of the world in this regard? I'm going to tell you why. Because remember what Jesus has said about his people already in his sermon They are spiritually bankrupt. They recognize that there is nothing they can do to make them acceptable to God. They recognize and they're sorrowful over the hurt they cause God in others. They've genuinely mourned over it and they have received the comfort of God's grace and his mercy. And this is precisely what compels them to extend mercy, the kind of mercy we've talked about, to other people. God's mercy compels them. They recognize that Jesus saw them naked. They recognize that Jesus saw them beaten. They recognize that Jesus saw them dead in the ditch of sin and death, and he didn't just walk on by. He didn't say, oh, it's their fault. He didn't say they deserve it. They rebelled against God. They had it coming. They've made their bed, so let them lie in it. No, Jesus, he stooped down. He got into the ditch with us, and he took on our suffering. He took on our brokenness. He took on our pain so that it could be lifted from us. What mercy, what compassion in action What? Forgiveness. And not only did he come to do all this and and unleash his power in us so that we could be transformed and renewed, of course, he forgave our sins all by what he did through the cross. Compassion and action and forgiveness we see in the way that Jesus has interacted with us. And it's this mercy of God that compels the people of his kingdom to extend mercy to others. Check this out. We Christians, I read this quote, it's fantastic. We Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, so we should be the most forgiving. 
right? In Luke 7, Jesus tells a story to a Pharisee named Simon. And it's about this money lender, money lender who loaned out money to two guys. And one guy was loaned a lot more money than the other guy. And the money lender, he decides he's going to settle accounts, right? And he's going to collect on the debts that these guys owed him. And Jesus asks Simon, this is a Pharisee that Jesus was talking to, which debtor will love the money lender more? And Simon, what he answers rightly, he says, the one who has been forgiven the most. You see, our ability to love is directly correlated to our understanding and our experience of God's amazing grace. Our ability to forgive is directly correlated to our understanding of how much God has forgiven us. Our ability to express compassion in action is directly correlated to the understanding that we have regarding the compassion and action that God has shown us. We cannot give what we have not received from God and understood. Jesus says the reason why the merciful are blessed is because they're going to receive mercy. Now, some have taken this to mean that you got to be merciful to earn God's mercy. But this would contradict Jesus' other teaching. It would contradict the whole message of the Bible. Jesus doesn't mean that. Do you see what he is saying is that showing mercy is evidence that you have received mercy from God. And you will receive more and more mercy, especially when Jesus returns as a lion and judges every person that has ever lived. If you're not showing mercy, then you have not received it. And this forces us to ask some very penetrating questions to examine our lives by. We're going to have Brandon and his team come up. And we're going to have some time of reflection. And just to get you going, let me ask you this question. Do you extend forgiveness and grace when someone commits wrong against us, against you? Do you hold on to grudges? Do you harbor resentment? Do you make people pay? I have a guy that's doing work in my basement right now. He had a guy come, deliver stone, leaked oil all in my brand new driveway. Am I going to be an idiot? Am I going to make him pay? No, God's grace, right? I mean, that's very basic. But I, I've received so much mercy and grace. How can I make this guy pay, right? What Shane is talking about is boiled down to as simple as First John four nineteen puts it: We love because He first loved us. That covers so much. So, 
let's sing and um, we just we invite you we invite you to uh, reflect we invite you to uh, confess we invite you to the altar we invite you to whatever God may be calling you to please stand
Go ahead and have a seat quick here. We're going we're gonna to have some questions that I want you to reflect on. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, Shane, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know how bad and how deeply I've been hurt. And maybe I don't. And I probably don't. Um, but I want to talk to you on that because I think, I believe that God has the power to even create in you a heart of forgiveness if you've been deeply wounded and hurt. And the reason I believe that is because what the scriptures say and because of what I have seen in other people's lives. I know right now you don't want to forgive. I know right now that you want to make them pay. There's nothing in you that wants to extend mercy and grace. But I argue, and and you're thinking, there's just no way I can do this. If you're there, you're actually closer to extending forgiveness than what you think. Because the first step is to recognize your need for help. Because when you recognize your need for help, then you can turn to God for assistance. Because he's the only one that can change your heart. And if you're connected to Jesus through repentance and faith, you have God's spirit in you. The spirit that can do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. This this spirit that works powerfully in you. God's spirit is able to do it. Some of you this morning need to go to Jesus, and you need to say, as we're singing this last song, you need to say, Lord, I have been hurt, and I can't forgive the offender. I don't even want to forgive them. Lord, please change my heart towards them. Please give me the, de- the desire to want to forgive them, and please give me the ability to eventually do it. Remember this too. This is important. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Feelings of warmth for a person, they may come, they may not. But that's not what forgiveness is based on. Forgiveness is also not for forgetting. If you've been hurt deeply, chances are you'll never forget that you've been. When you forget, forgiveness is also not excusing. When you forgive, you're not saying what the person has done to you is okay. Forgiveness, and this is so important, it is a decision. It is a decision of the will. It is a decision not to make the person pay for the offense. It's a decision not to use what they've done against you in any way. It's a decision to not let their offense cause you to hold them at a distance. This is forgiveness. This is the forgiveness that God has shown to us. If someone has hurt you, fueled by God's power, you must decide and commit to doing several things. And the first is this, not to dwell on the offense. Each time that offense comes back in your mind, you must practice the habit of redirecting yourself to what you're presently doing. You must also 
not bring up the incident again to the person that has hurt you and use it against them. You must also commit to talking to nobody else about the incidents except for a counselor or a pastor or a friend that can give you empathy and then hold you accountable to forgive. Because when we're hurt, we love to tell everybody else how badly so-and-so has hurt us. That's just another way to make them pay. You must, not, you must also not allow the incident to keep that person at a distance who has hurt you. Because that's another one to make them pay. That's another way to make them pay. God's grace is sufficient for this. He does not guide where he doesn't provide. His grace is sufficient. If we partner with him in this way, we may just find that feelings, the right feelings come. They may not, but they just may come. God's power to do this, to create a forgiven, forgiving heart in a person, I think, is so powerfully illustrated in the story of Corey Ten Boom. One author writes this about her experience. Corey Ten Boom recalled in her book, The Hiding Place, a post-war meeting with a guard from the Ravensbrook concentration camp where her sister had died and she herself had been subjected to horrible indignities. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of Ravensbrook. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Frolin, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hands were thrust out to shake mine. This man had killed her sister. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blomendale, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. This is the power of God. The author continues when he's talking about Corey Tenboom's story. He then talks about his personal experience. He says, forgiveness is possible for the most grievous of wounds. When I was a young man, I was acquainted with a Christian who took in a troubled teenager and tried to help him. The boy brutally murdered the man's daughter. Amazingly, my friend visited him in prison, forgave him, and eventually led him to Christ. 
If you are a Christian, regardless of the wrong done to you, you can forgive. By God's grace, you can forgive the domestic wrong. By God's grace, you can forgive the professional wrong. For your soul's sake, you must. That's important right there. It's been said that unforgiveness is the poison we drink expecting the other person to die. At this time, the music team's going to play. And I want you to ask these questions. I want you to have God search your heart. Do you regularly look to meet the needs of others? Are your eyes always on the lookout to see people that are hurting and to, f- and to figure out how you can be a part of the solution? If not, you have to ask yourself, are you in the kingdom of God? Has God's mercy, his compassion and action really become real to you? If you say, yes, I, you gotta, I always fill the needs, it seems like, with a spirit of complaint. You got to check your heart too. Who is God specifically calling you to meet the need of? It could be somebody, I would ask that question too. It could be somebody in this congregation. It could be somebody in your family. It could be somebody at work. There's tons of hurting people, right? So I don't think it's a lack of, you're going to find someone and he'll probably put somebody on your heart. And you got to commit to doing something about it. And then I also want you to consider the question, is there somebody that you truly haven't extended forgiveness to? Is there somebody who you have not committed to to not making them pay? So I want you to ask that before God as well.
you this morning because you are the one who paid our debt and you are the one who raised our lives from the dead and we thank you for that and lord who are we to withhold forgiveness to withhold mercy to withhold compassion when we have been shown and extended eternal mercy eternal forgiveness and eternal compassion lord we pray that that truth would melt our hearts and that that would allow us to go and to be the salt and the light of the earth. We love you. We thank you so much. We thank you that there is grace when we fail and that we don't have to be perfect because we have the perfection of the one who is. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.